gentleman reminded me so much of the Lord Jesus. You know, when Jesus told the disciples, let's go apart for a while, what happened? He didn't even get any seclusion at that point, but the people came and flocked toward him, finding him to again hear him preach. And so there was no quietness. Reminded me so much of that dear man who burned himself out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Goes very much along with our object lesson. And the honeybee. It's interesting. One of the interesting facts about the honeybee is that in the summer, the worker bee literally kills himself with work. Works so hard for the cause of the colony that it only lasts no more than six weeks. Honeybee's life at its top acceleration, its workforce only lasts no more than six weeks. Now, in the winter, it has uh, the puts on more fat and, of course, over the winter, rarely leaves the colony and does very little foraging around, and so it lives four to six months, which helps them to overwinter. So, you're going to burn yourself out for the kingdom. Work for the kingdom. But I just want a little time for myself. No, not for the honeybee. He'll kill himself in work for the colony, for the bigger picture. Our theme, again, for the week, a healthy community of believers. Again, citing the honeybee. Unlike most cities, unlike most businesses, unlike most churches, unlike most homes, there is nearly a perfect cooperation. Nearly a perfect cooperation in a bee colony. There are no unions. There are no strikes. There are no political mudslingings. They are all intensely patriotic and will defend with their life against their enemies for a bigger cause than themselves. Amazing. Amazing what they do for the bigger cause. Honeybees, one of their main features, which is actually special among other bees and wasps in this area of the country, Not only is the honeybee social, which is kind of rare, the honeybee's colonies are perennial. In other words, they last from one year to the next. Nearly all others, all other bees and wasps, each spring spring, a solitary female will lay the egg and put the food there for the larva. Lay the egg, put the food there, and then go on and lay the next one. And no one's there to care for it. So different than the honeybee colony. There the honeybees hover over the larva, hover over the nest, and put a lot of time, a lot of time into, into it. 
Bumblebees and paper wasps, though they are social from dozens to hundreds of members, yet every year they start out from a solitary female. How different than the honeybees who are perennial and they go on. Something unique about the honeybee is the way they overwinter. Overwinter, when it gets cold, they cluster together. They find a place inside their nest where there's lots of honey and they cluster over that area. The bees all form a bowl and the queen is in the center. She's protected. She's in the center of this bowl of bees. Amazing. Now, I would hate to really liken the ministers of churches to be like the queen bee because it's different in that we as ministers are not above anyone else, not better than anyone else. The only difference is we have more responsibility. But because God has given ministers of churches more responsibilities, the congregation should rally around them, just like the bee does the queen. I mean, the life of the hive has to do with the queen. They hover around it. You know what we do? We take our ministers and we take them out of that ball and we set them over here somewhere and then we start shooting at them. Not the honeybee. Takes that queen, puts it in the center, and they all hover around. Well, now as winter goes on, of course, I think, I think what you would consider they would go into a semi, um, what's the word? Dormancy. Semi-dormancy. They're not, you know, they don't uh, completely shut down, but they do semi, so they don't need to eat a lot. But you have this ball of bees. The, the female, the queen, is in the center. Now, when it gets real cold, and actually if it stays cold too long, those outer bees are going to start freezing to death. And so they just fall off one after the other. They start freezing if the winter's too long. Now if you, throughout the winter, you get a couple days of a warm spell and the bees start moving around, it gives opportunity for those on the outside to then find themselves to the food, get into the center more. But they are in a ball. They're all working together with one purpose. And they will actually give their lives for the bigger cause. They will simply die for the bigger cause. And so if you have a real poor winter, or if you, I mean a real hard winter, or if they don't have enough food, they will actually starve to death because they can't move around that much in cold weather. And so it's important for every beekeeper to keep plenty of food there for them. And hopefully the winter ain't that hard to kill too many of them off. But you will see then that the bees, when they have a chance to move around and clean up a little bit, they will take all those dead bees and they'll push them out the door. And you can have a whole pile of dead bees outside their doorway, their cleaning house. 
But I think it's very unique and interesting that they will give their life for the greater cause. Each worker bee serves the needs of the colony as a whole. Without her hive mates, without her hive mates, no bee can survive long. It is the colony that reproduces, not the individual. It's the colony that reproduces, not the individual. And so tonight, I would like to bring a message, and I titled it, A Community Spirit. A Community Spirit. So, let's consider what makes Church. What would you say makes church? Well, we could go out across the land and we could uh, consider all these wonderful, massive churches. They're expensive, they're massive, they're elaborate, they got stained glass, they got huge pillars, they got beautiful artwork. Well, definitely, surely, if we had church in one of those buildings, that would be church. That would be community. That would really make us something. Maybe not. Probably not. Well then, what makes church? For some, it's the Sunday morning service. Or it's the Wednesday night service. I'm there every time the doors are open. I'm a very consistent, faithful member of the church. There's preaching there. There's praying there. But is that really what Jesus had in mind when He says, I will build my church? The Anabaptists found a whole new meaning. The Anabaptists were a minority group. And they found themselves worshipping in caves and not church buildings. What made church? It wasn't the buildings. It wasn't primarily the preaching and the praying. What really made church is the relationships of the believers to first of all to God and then to each other. A new creation. The relationship of believers, first to God and then to each other, is what really made church. And so church becomes more than just a Sunday morning and more than just a Wednesday evening. Or just when we have revivals. Church becomes, a consumes our whole life. All of a sudden I am part of a being, a part of a colony that is bigger than myself. And I am giving myself for the cause of that colony. So all of a sudden, I think of my brothers and I think of my sisters on Monday morning. And I think of them on Monday evening. And I think of them again at Monday noon. Because I am part of a colony, I am fighting for the bigger cause. It's not just a Sunday preaching service where we come and we sit in. Oh, pastor, that was a good message. Thank you. And go home and eat our meal and kick up our feet and read a book and go to bed early and then go on to work for the rest of the week. It's more than that. We are a brotherhood. We are a bunch of people that are working together like the honeybee colony. 
Each one is working for the cause of the whole, for the cause outside of themselves. They are not an end in themselves. They are a part of a bigger picture. I'd like for us all to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting to read in verse 11, I like to watch this as these Scriptures unfold right to the end of the chapter, verse 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, it says, Wherefore, remember, wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, I would suppose that all of us here would fall under that category. We are Gentiles. We have been Gentiles. Verse 12, that at that time, while we were Gentiles, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man. So making peace, and that he might reconcile both, that's the Jew and the Gentile, unto God in one body. And how is it done? It's done by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. I'd like to pull that Scripture apart a bit. And I'd like to do it with a diagram on the board. I have went through, uh, maybe years ago, and I marked some of these words, and I would like to highlight them this evening for you. As we look at this scripture, we're going to have two headings. The first headings is, ye were, and the second heading is, but. Now, so under ye were, we know that as Gentiles, we were without Christ. Without Christ. Isn't it amazing? All of us, we were without Christ. We were aliens. Aliens. We were strangers. We had no hope. 
No hope whatsoever. We were without God. We were far off. And we were at enmity. Now, of course, Jesus Christ came and through the cross, we were without Christ, but now we are made nigh. Hallelujah. We are made nigh by the blood of Jesus. We were aliens, but now we are both one. And these go as patterns. If you go through your Bible, they go as patterns And I think it's beautiful how they connect. We were strangers and now we are one new man. We were without hope and now we are reconciled to Christ. We were without God. We now have access. We were afar off and now we are fellow citizens. And we were at enmity and God has built So we have what we were and what we are now. And then, of course, all of this was done, not just so that you and I would be saved, not so that we would just have a nice life, not so that we can go on in life and just live our own lives. God had a very intent purpose in this. And the Bible says we were fitly framed together. And I am going to see if I can squeeze that in here. Fitly framed together. Fitly framed together. That's what this is all about. We became a habitation of God. And so we become a habitation of God and so we have a house. And this house is the church. And we have God inhabiting the church. And so tonight we want to consider that the church is Zion Christian Fellowship. And so we see that Christ died for us. We were without Christ. We were made nigh. We were aliens. We're now both one. We were strangers. We're now one new man. We had no hope. We were reconciled. We were without God. We now have access. We were far off. We're fellow citizens. We were at enmity. And we have been built upon the prophets and the apostles of Jesus Christ. And we are fitly framed together. We become a habitation for God. And it is the church... God is dwelling within us. And so all of that was for that reason. There are so many people today that, oh, it's just between me and God. I don't need my brothers. 
I don't necessarily need to go and fellowship with other believers. I can just fellowship with my Bible and myself at home. That was not the point. The point was to bring a group of people together so that God could come and inhabit this group of people and show to the whole world a beautiful picture of grace and beauty. And so, we're working for a bigger cause than that of ourselves. There is a big difference between a pile of stones and a building. It says, God has fitly framed us together. Uniquely put us together. It's like a mason taking these palace stones that represent nothing but simply a palace stones. There's no order to it. Uh, a mason taking them, sizing them up, putting them in place and building a house. That's what God does in the congregation. There's a basic difference between a pile of automobile parts and an automobile. Basic difference, if you have the pile of parts, it really means nothing. But if you put them together, assemble them, then they become useful. There must be some kind of purposeful assembly. It must occur, some purposeful assembly must occur before the one can become the other. Ulrich Stadler, 1537, he said in brief, the word one or common builds the Lord house and is pure. But mine, thine, his, or own, it divides the Lord's house and it is not pure. So, the church. What is the church? It's more than getting together one or twice a week. There's a big difference between a collection of believers and a church. A big difference. A group's priorities stood above one's own individual thinking. Get that. A group's priorities stood above one's own individual thinking. It was group mentality. They start thinking as a group. They start thinking within the group, not as individual. You know, sometimes I think we've been so thoroughly taught that the Father is the priest in the home that we annihilated this concept of thinking on the bigger picture. Now we need fathers. And we need fathers with a vision. And we need fathers who lead their homes. And we need to have fathers that have a vision for their homes. We can't build church without that. But that is always taken within context of the bigger picture. We've uh, so thoroughly taught fathers to be the priests in their home that there is no cohesion to the larger body. And so then, each man does what is right in his own eyes, and they come together Sunday morning, Hi brother, how are you doing? I hope you had a good week. And then they go their own way and still do their own thing. Jesus' family. Jesus taught 
allegiance to his family over one's biological family. Simply, that means if there is a conflict of interest, Jesus' family always comes first. Now, does that mean that family is not important so that, oh yeah, as soon as I turn 18, I'm leaving home. Wait a minute. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means, I believe there is loyalty in the home. I believe there's loyalty between the parent. I believe there's loyalty from the children to the parent, from the parent to the children. I believe there's loyalty there, but when there is a conflict of interest... And someone has to decide between their biological blood, brother, father, whatever it is, and between the kingdom of God. They must put Jesus first. They must. Much of the New Testament uses words like brother, sister, family to describe the followers of Jesus. So how does this wash out? How does this wash out? Individuals putting the concerns, honor, and interests of the group above their own. That's the way it works. They put their interests, their concerns, and their honor above their own. Individuals deriving their identity from their standing within the group more than their personal accomplishments. Very important. Individuals deriving their identity from their standing within the group more than their personal accomplishments. In other words, all of us lost, losing our identity in Christ and in the body of Christ. And number three, individuals seeing themselves responsible to the group for their actions. Responsible to the group for their actions. So, what I do in my home does not reflect on you. Correct? Incorrect. What I do in my home, those actions are first of all God conscious and next they are body conscious. I'm not on my own. I'm not out there to do my own thing. My interest is in the body. I mean, you just take the honeybees. Everything is consumed. Everything is consumed by the colony. Everything is dictated by the colony. Their whole life is dictated by the bigger picture. I'd like to look at a couple of verses as we think of Jesus' family and allegiance to it, just to get an idea or to follow through on some thoughts on that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we're reading verses 18 to 22. Matthew chapter 4, this is quite astounding. I have not really ever connected to this quite like these men did. And says, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And what did they do? And they straightway left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. That's amazing. That is amazing. I don't know what they had invested into their father's business. I don't know what they had coming in later years. Jesus just said, come follow me. They were willing to lay down their future. They were willing to lay down whatever they had coming. And they just simply followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And verse... 21 and 22. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Again, we're looking at following Jesus and giving allegiance to the family of Jesus brothers and sisters of Christ, here we have someone saying, I'll follow you, but I need to go home and bury my father. Now, under the Jewish culture, burying your father was a big thing. You take, for instance, Joseph, and he had given the children of Israel a command that when he dies, that they needed to keep his body. And when they go out of Egypt, he saw ahead, when they go out of Egypt... They're supposed to take his body along. Jacob, when he died, the whole crew of them, the whole family, went up and buried him in the sepulcher of his father. It was really important. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, let the dead bury the dead. Where are our priorities? Loyalty first to the family of Jesus. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While yet he talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Let's go over yet to one more. Mark chapter 10 and verse 28. Mark chapter 10, verse Mark chapter ten twenty eight. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we've left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake in the Gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. So what Jesus is saying here, if 
You, if there is conflict between you and your biological family, if there is conflict between you and the land that you live in and you need to get up and you need to leave, if you have to leave your wife or your children for my sake, for the gospel's sake, you're going to get a hundredfold. I mean, hundredfold is a lot. That means you plant one and you get a hundred back. That is quite a good investment. That is a tremendous investment. If you could put your money in the bank and get a hundredfold, you better put it in there. Jesus said they're going to have that. I think of a dear brother who's in our congregation. Before he got converted, he divorced his wife. And his wife went and remarried, had a child with another man, and raised his children. He got converted, truly saved, born again. And he's been in our congregation probably for the last 20 years. That man had the sorrow of watching another father raise his biological children. And there was a long-standing conflict between his former wife, between her second husband, and he hardly got to see the children. I used to remind him over and over again, it's okay. It's okay. God is going to give you a hundredfold. The Bible said so. If you're willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that the temptation to cave in, the temptation to give up, the temptation to go out and just find another life, it was real. But I told him, if you are willing to follow through faithfully a hundredfold, a hundredfold, he's faithful. He's walking with God. So what does this call us to? It calls us to be community-minded. Community-minded. It calls us to defending the community spirit. Defending the community spirit. I wonder sometimes if we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. We're doing away with, well, for instance... The whole idea of, I think it's a beautiful principle in the Word of God to help each other with our financial needs. Well, since our hospital bills are getting so big, because it is so challenging to pay our hospital bills, we're starting to farm that out. We're starting to give it away to others. All of a sudden, I have my own insurance company. You have your own. You have a need. I never hear about it. It never touches my wallet. It never even pulls on my heartstrings because someone else is going to help you out. We start farming so many things out like that that all of a sudden we have lost the community spirit. Today we've become independent. And I think we're going to have to choose to become dependent. Everybody has their own thing. Today all the farmers have their own equipment. They all farm for themselves. Years ago they used to help each other. We have lost the community spirit. And we can't gain all of that back again. But we're going to have to see what has been happening. And we're going to have to get it where we can. And it might be so simple as 
I mean, we have all kinds of technology today. I mean, it takes a second to text another brother and just say, Brother, I love you. Brother, be encouraged in the Lord. What can I pray for you? Text a message over that brother you know is struggling. I'm going to pray for you today. Expect results. I mean, we can do so much just to build that relationship. But it's so easy to go home and all we think about is our work and what we got to do. And we run ragged till midweek and we come into church on Wednesday night and haven't even communicated with anybody for the last three days. Community spirit. I don't think that a church needs to dictate all aspects of life. I mean, there's some churches that dictate the age of the vehicle you may drive, how many cows you may have, how much horsepower tractor you may have. I really don't think that's what it's talking about. But there needs to be within the heart of every individual in this colony a willingness to sacrifice for the bigger calls. A willingness to sacrifice for the bigger calls. There has to be. And so, first of all, we need to be God conscious. And then second of all, we need to be conscious to the bigger equation. So all of a sudden, when I go and I use my money to buy something, I'm God conscious. But you know, I'm conscious this way also. How will this affect my relationship with my brothers and sisters? When I go and I go to the clothing store to buy clothing, I have a God consciousness which is first. But I also have a consciousness here. How does this complement the vision and the goals of the brotherhood? How will this draw us together? How will this pull us together? How will this unify and unite our hearts together as a body? There's that consciousness that is there. First of all, a God consciousness. But I tell you, there has to be a consciousness among the colony. has to be. We need to take the greater community in mind. You know, when, when a family comes or someone comes and want to be a member in our church, you know what, another thing I ask about? I ask them about whether they have consumer debt. Because we believe that when someone is committed to our congregation, all of a sudden, I am then responsible... For their debt. If they can't pay their debt. So do you have consumer debt? I will ask them. Do you have a credit card? Yes I have a credit card. Well that's fine. Do you pay it off every month? And I tell them. As soon as you don't pay that off every month. Give it to me. I'll cut it in half. There are so many people. That have got caught with that thing. But we're a community. You're coming in among us. You're bringing your, your debt. You're bringing your difficulties. You're bringing your problems in. They become mine. And so I'm interested in knowing. 
How many times did we have to help consolidate credit cards? And how many times have we helped to pay off 20, 30-year-old student loans? Because they become a part of the bigger body. So I choose what I buy by a larger conscience. The clothes that I wear, the music that I listen to, how does that fit with the vision and the goals of the congregation? We live so independent. I can have my music, you can have your music, you just don't bother me. Don't work that way. Not if we're going to be a colony. Not if we're going to work together for a common cause. Not if we're going to be a habitation for God. Not if we're going to be a building fitly joined together that makes a testimony of the world out there. I think this starts here. We wonder why our churches are so, so, we're just so, we just don't have unity. We just don't think the same. We just, I don't know. It just seems like everybody goes their own way. We're going to have to change the way we think. We're going to have to change the way we think. I'm going to choose my employment by the larger conscience. What does, how does this fit into the vision of the brotherhood? I mean, if everyone employed that kind of an attitude, can you imagine how beautiful it would be? It would be so lovely. The technology. I mean, technology is splitting churches left and right. Don't let it happen here, I tell you. It'd be so much better to sacrifice some kind of technology just to be in unity and oneness with the brothers. Oh, the blessing that you will get from it would be many fold. So we are to promote the bigger cause. My identity is swallowed up by the community. Each individual builds identity Builds the identity of the church. So, you might ask the question, well then, what rights do I have? Actually, there's only one right you have. Only one right. You know what that is? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the right to the tree of life. Other than that, God has all the permission in the world to take away your home tonight. He has all the, all the right in the world to take away your brothers, your spouse tonight, Sp- uh, wives, your husbands, your children. We, have, we can't cling on to them as our rights. So what right do I have? So, if I don't have more rights than that, then if my wonderful church brothers decide... That you know what? We're not going to have the internet in our homes. That's a simple sacrifice. I can do without it. We don't think that way. So I have one right. It's through Christ to the tree of life. Are we living for others? Are we living for the bigger picture? How independent are you? When have you asked that young man on the pew beside you, How are you doing? And I mean, how are you really doing? How are you doing in your spiritual life? 
Young man, could I ask you a real personal question? I'm wondering how you're doing morally. Would you mind sharing with me? I mean, we're not, it's not about to me. It's not about my little life. All of a sudden, I become concerned about the bigger picture. I'm concerned about my brothers and sisters. This is not about just coming to church Sunday morning, hearing a good message preached. It's coming together and really having concern for each other. Just like that bee goes to the forger coming in and he taps his antennas and he puts his mouth up to that other one and says, here, please, give me, give me your pollen or give me your nectar. And he carries it off and he deposits it. goes back again to get the next one. Is that the way we're going to do community? How are you doing? I mean, really, how are you doing? How can it be that there's... there's and I'm ashamed to have to tell you this. There was a young man in our congregation that for four months he was living undercover. He said, why did somebody come and ask me how I'm doing? I shouldn't have had to. But that is my job. That's all of our responsibility. How are you doing? Is it going well for you? Are you living Above sin. Have you, brothers, married brothers, have you asked other brothers, how is your marriage going? It's none of your business. Really? It's not? It is my business. We're a community. I'm interested in how your marriage is going. Can we be that honest? That's the only way it's going to work. I mean, you want to build friendship. You want to build unity. You want to build oneness. It starts right there. That's where it starts. How's your marriage? You know what? You're not even nosy. It's altogether alright. It's your business. Just keep your nose to yourself. I am because you are myself. We are one. I'm over. It's all right for me to stick my nose into your business. Real challenge, young men. Do you ask the other young men, how are you doing? How is your walk with the Lord? Are you getting something out of the Bible? Sisters, young ladies, teenagers, can we ask those questions of each other? Can you imagine the blessing that would flow through this? This would be one of the healthiest colonies and everybody would be flocking here to see what's going on. What do these people have? I mean, it's not about the Sunday morning service. Well, somewhat, but it's much bigger than that. How are you doing? I mean, I'm a, I imagine most of you text. It would be very simple for you as a young lady to text the other lady. I mean, forget that foolish stuff that everybody's texting. Forget that. Let's text messages like, Did you read your Bible this morning? Or, What did you get out of the Bible this morning? It would transform our lives. Let's wake up. There's so much foolishness that goes on with these texting and these emails. We're sending out these funny things. We don't have time for that. 
Not if we're a community and we are dying for the bigger cause. Oh, we know that such and such a brother or such and such a sister is struggling. I just hope somebody talks to them. Hello? Whose job is it anyways? Oh, it's Elvin's job. Really? If you're going to do church that way, church ain't going to last long. It's everybody's responsibility. And then the other thing is we somehow think that we should be okay with isolating ourselves. We just kind of build a wall around us and we really don't let anyone inside. You can't build community that way. You need to open up your heart wide open and let me into your heart. We had a neighbor man that isolated himself from the community. He was a little bit mentally deranged. Everybody was scared of him. He accused the neighbor man, who was probably 250 pounds, and blamed him for climbing the tree outside of his house, climbing out a branch that probably wouldn't have held a raccoon, opened up a window that was painted shut for the last 30 years, and stole things out of his house. And we all said, you're crazy. But he was so sure he found some hair on the windowsill, and he was going to try to get it diagnosed, or whatever you say, checked out to see whose hair it was. He was so mentally deranged that we were afraid of him. And I tried to communicate with him. I tried to relate to him. When there was snow to push, I'd go push the snow, but I never went to the house. Uh, if I went to the house... I would sing really loud because I did not want to surprise him. Because one night, I heard him shooting and shooting. And then he did the next night and next night. So one day I saw him out of town and I said, Hey, sir, what are you shooting at in the middle of the night? My house is just back there. He said, Oh, I'm shooting at any stray cats or anything else that might be around. Like, whoa. Anyhow, so all of the neighbors were scared of him. He isolated himself completely from everybody else. Well, one day... The mail carrier noticed he's not getting his mail. And it's been three or four days now. There must be something. So she calls up the local police. They call the fire company. And they call the ambulance. And the fire trucks come in there. And everybody, you know, is aware of this man. And so they put up their big lights. And the house is all lit up and shining. And then the police goes in the front door, breaks in. And he's walking in there. And here the man's laying on the floor, and his house is so, I saw it. I actually helped clean it out after he moved out. It was so full that uh, his bed was on top of the magazines that were the, the papers, and it was probably halfway up to the ceiling. He just lay on there. Here he was in a little valley in between these piles, and the policeman, I don't know what happened, tripped over something, fell on the man, and bumped the gun right out of his hand that he had in his hands, the, the, this, this neighbor man had in his hands. He was in bad shape. He couldn't get up. He was laying there for how many days? Because he has isolated himself. That should never, ever happen in the congregation. We should be so involved in each other's lives that we detect early on that there's something wrong with my brother or my sister. How can it be? 
1 Corinthians 10.24 says, Let no man seek his own, but every man's another's wealth. Really? So my goal is to seek for your betterment and for your wealth. Well, what about my pocketbook? Don't worry about your pocketbook. God will take care of that. Give your life for the bigger calls. Leviticus 19.17 Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Really? So if I don't ask my brother, or if I see my brother struggling in sin, if I do nothing about it, I hate him. The Scripture says, I hate him. If I'm going to live in my own little world and let my brothers and sisters suffer, I hate them. At the close of life, the question will not be how much have you got, but how much have you given. Not how much you have saved, but how much have you sacrificed. Not how much were you honored, but how much have you served. How many of you have seen the motto with the praying hands? Have you seen that motto with the praying hands? Some of you have. Uh, that motto would, uh, would have been painted by, uh, originated from a worldwide famous artist, Albrecht Dora. He lived from 1471 to 1528 and how those praying hands came about. This was late in the 15th century. Him and his brother were young apprentices in the woodworking business in France. Albrecht and Hans. These men were poor. They came from a very poor family. But they so much wanted to study painting. But they were so poor that they had to come up with some kind of a way to accomplish their desire. And so they decided that one of them would go and study and the other one would stay back and work. And all his money, as much as possible he could sacrifice, would be paid to help this first one get their studies. When that one's done and he comes back, he's learned to paint, then he'll support his brother. And so they flipped the coin. And it was Albrecht's opportunity to go be a painter. Study painting. And so he went. And the months turned to years. Hands was working, turning all as much as he could possibly sacrifice. He took almost everything. He had to live with about nothing to try to support his brother, looking for the day that his brother will support him. Months turned into years. And one day, Albrecht Dora came home rejoicing. He was a painter. And he came home and there was a rejoicing unit between the two brothers. Now, Hans had worked in the blacksmith shop. Months turned into years. And as his brother, as his brother Albrecht greeted him, so glad to see him, he looked at his brother Hans 
and he saw his hands. His brother hands, his hands were all gnarled and calloused from the many years of working in the blacksmith shop. And immediately he knew hands will never be able to hold a paintbrush. Hands literally gave his life to see his brother prosper. They fell on each other's shoulders and wept. And so Albrecht, in light of his brother's sacrifice, made those praying hands that you and I get to see today. The portrait in behalf of hands. What am I willing to sacrifice for the bigger picture? What am I willing to sacrifice for the bigger picture? Churches are splitting over issues like lifestyle issues. They're splitting over things like clothing issues. They're splitting and falling apart over technology issues. I mean, those things pale in sacrifice. When you consider hands working all those years in the blacksmith shop just to see his brother prosper. And so when the group of brothers say, we're not going to, we're just not going to wear that anymore around here. I mean, it seems like such a simple sacrifice. Say, amen, I'm with you. And follow through. I mean, what kind of cost is that? Amazing. It does fly in the face of this independent world. But the question is, why can't we give it up for the bigger cause? 1 Corinthians 10.33 says, Even as I please all men... In all things, not seeking mine own profit. That honeybee will kill himself working and die within six weeks for the cause of the colony. Paul says, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved, living for the bigger cause. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be rich. So what can I give up? What is too big to sacrifice for the bigger cause? There was an article in the Reader's Digest. It explained how trees in a forest take advantage of Community. You have all these trees and all their roots are down there and they entangle into each other. This article went on to say when the roots of trees touch, there's a substance present that reduces competition. Different kinds of trees, different species. There's a, there's a, a, a substance present that reduces competition. And here it is, should be in the community of believers, love should be that substance. 
In fact, this unknown fungus helps link roots of different trees, even of dissimilar species. A whole forest may be linked together if one tree has access to water, another to nutrients, and the third to sunlight. The trees have a means to share with one another. Trees in a forest are a good example to Christians in community. Isn't that beautiful? Even the trees do better than us. Shame on us. I mean, trees are glorifying God. They're doing exactly what they're created for. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we'd all just sacrifice for a common cause and walk in unity? God would be glorified. There's this Japanese honeybees. We've been talking about honeybees, our local honeybee here. I don't even know where it came from, England or somewhere. I believe Columbus brought the first ones over. They are not native. Our honeybees are not native to uh, North America. But the Japanese honeybees. It seems that the Japanese honeybees have a very fearsome predator, and that is the giant Japanese hornet. And these giant Japanese hornets like to find the Japanese honeybee nests. And what they like to do is they like to go in and they like to get into the hive, whether it's inside a tree trunk, wherever it is. They get in and they kill a couple of the honeybees and they take it back to their nest to feed to, the young, uh, to their larvae. And then they come back and their idea is to mark, or, uh, yeah, mark the, the nest with a scent. So all the other giant uh, Japanese hornets can find it. Now, these uh, Japanese honeybees, they're really shrewd. And so what they do is, if this hornet comes, and he comes in and he grabs a few of them, kills them and takes them, then they're ready for him to come back. They're ready for the hornet. So when he comes back, they see him flying back, they all go outside their nest. And then they will be start really uh, sticking up their abdomen and acting really crazy, get the hornet really angry. And then when the hornet gets really angry and comes after them, they all run inside the hive. And of course, the hornet's so mad, he follows them, but he has no idea. Inside is thousands and thousands of Japanese honeybees that are just waiting there for him. He comes in there, they all attack him. And they all jump on him, he's weighing, this hornet now is in the middle of a ball of bees the size of a man's fist. And then they squirm and they flap their wings and they move their muscles and they create such a heat that the hornet dies. The difference is the hornet will die at 115 degrees, but the honeybees can stand up to 120 degrees. So they all work together for the purpose of killing the hornet. I think that's amazing. Now, wouldn't that be something? If somebody would come and want to try to disrupt the unity of Zion Christian Fellowship. Somebody would like to come and steal the hearts of one of the peoples. Disrupt the unity. You need the bigger picture. You need the brothers and sisters and I'm not telling you to jump on the person when they come in and somehow attack them. But still, we need each other. 
We cannot walk through this world alone. We need our brothers and sisters to stand beside us to lift up our arms, to strengthen those knees, to make plain paths for our feet, that that which is lame would not fall by the wayside. We need each other. You're dangerous if you're out there by yourself. You're very dangerous. There's just, there's just no time to be floating out there without a church. There's no time for it. I need my brothers and sisters. Temptations are real. Between 100 and 200 years ago, one day in Japan, there was an earthquake, which earthquake was kind of common. So nobody really thought of it. It was an earthquake and everybody went back to business after the shaking stopped. But there was an old gentleman who lived way up on the mountain. He was an old gentleman. He saw a lot of earthquakes. And as he stood there and was looking down into the valley where all the people lived and out to the ocean, he saw something strange happening. He saw that the water was moving against the wind. The water was moving out and out. Of course, he knew what's happening. And of course, we know today they're called tsunamis. And so he's like, what shall he do? He quickly called for his grandson and said, quickly, go get me a torch. Grandson ran and got him a torch behind him. Lay his whole year's worth of rice, piled on piles, ready to go to market. He took the torch and he went and lit every pile. After a while, there was this blaze growing. Sure enough, down in the valley, the bell of the church started pealing. Everybody looked up. Where's the fire? They saw the man up on the hill. There's a fire. So they all went running running up the hill, and they said to themselves, this man's crazy. He's burning his rice crop. So he got to the top of the hill, huffing and puffing. The old gentleman shouted and said, turn around, folks. Look out across the water. And they saw this line of water, this wall of water, coming in across came in, it crashed into the land, and all their houses went to splinters. It receded, and another wave. It receded, and another wave. And then it settled down. Everything on the hill was quiet. And then they heard the old man say, I burned my rice to save your lives. And he stood there as poor as the poorest of them all. Seems silly to me that there would be these little issues among us that we can't sacrifice for each other, for the cause of the bigger picture. And the question to you and to me tonight, am I committed to the cause of the colony?
Am I willing to lose my identity for the calls of the bigger picture? Am I going to be involved in my brothers' and sisters' lives more than on a Sunday morning church service? What will I give? What is too great of a sacrifice in light of these tremendous sacrifices? First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And probably you could tell me many stories. It seems so simple just to lay down my life for the brethren. God help us. God help us. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again this evening we are amazed at your design and purpose for the believers. And I admit, along with my brothers and sisters, we have swallowed the independent attitudes. But tonight we've seen the bigger picture. We understand your design and purpose for our lives, for the church. We know that you have saved us and you put us, each one of us, in a special place in the congregation. You have called us to the calls of the greater uh, colony. I pray that tonight we could all just lay down our lives. We could uh, surrender our reputations to the identity of the group. We could surrender those things that we find so hard to give up for the unity of the congregation, for the good of the cause. I pray that this evening that each one of us would fly that flag of surrender. I am willing to give my very life for the cause of the bigger picture. And so I ask, Lord, that these things... Somehow you would teach us how to live them out. They could be so foreign to us. Teach us how to live them out. I pray for this congregation. That this congregation here could just continue to build on this principle. And that they could be such a beautiful demonstration of the grace of God. That it would be a loud spoken word across the eastern parts of Iowa and across the nation as a whole. Would you raise them up, Father? Would you forgive us all of our silly, silly, petty sins? And would you give us grace to rise up and fight for the bigger cause? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.